Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 182. It's titled Tulip Mania and Bitcoin. A year ago, November 2016, Bitcoin was selling for $700 for one Bitcoin. And then by August 2017, when I recorded episode 167, which was titled, Is Bitcoin Better at Money Than the Dollar? It was selling for $2,700 per Bitcoin. And at that point, I added some exposure to Bitcoin. Then, apparently just over a month later, September 12th, Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, said, both at a, at a conference and then later on CNBC, set of Bitcoin, it's worse than tulip bulbs. It won't end well. Someone is going to get killed. By then, Bitcoin was selling for $4,100 for one Bitcoin. And today, as I'm recording this, it's $8,200 per Bitcoin. That, is that tulip mania? Tulip mania is, is a tulip bulb bubble, you could call it, or mania in the 17th century. About, it, it peaked in February 1637. And I don't know if you invested in Bitcoin, but one of the members of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, a listener, he said, please don't use my name, but you can use my email. He started investing in Bitcoin just in mid-2016. He, he invested in Bitcoin, Ethereum, some other cryptocurrencies. And over a six-month period, invested about 3 to 4% of his liquid net worth. Now, it's 27% of his net worth. And he's been selling. He's already sold two times the amount that he invested. And every time, every month or so, he sells another 5%. But it's still 27% of his net worth. He writes, I'm bullish on cryptocurrencies in the long term. So it feels odd to sell a large quantity right now. And I would have regrets if I did that and it continued its current trend. It also feel odds to have a large percentage of my net worth in such a volatile asset class. And so he's looking for insights. What, what do I do with this sort of, what he calls a obviously fortuitous situation? Is investing in Bitcoin like investing in tulips back in 1637? I first became aware of tulip mania from a book I found. I, was, I had some clients in New Orleans. I was in the French Quarter went to Crescent City Books. It's a used bookstore. And I found the 1932 edition of a book that was published in 1841 by Charles Mackey. It was called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. In there, he wrote about this tulip mania. He writes, everyone imagined that the passion for tulips would last forever and that the wealthy from every part of the world would send to Holland and pay whatever price were asked for them. The riches of Europe would be concentrated on the shores of the Zuder Zee and poverty banished from the favored clime of Holland. Nobles, citizens, farmers, mechanics, seamen, footmen, maidservants, even chimney sweeps and old clothes women dabbled in tulips. 
just everybody was doing it. Burton Makiel, he wrote a random walk down Wall Street, and in there he called the tulip mania, the tulip bulb craze was one of the most spectacular get-rich-quick binges in history. Later, he said the final chapter of Tulip Mania is that the shock generated by the boom in collapse was followed by a prolonged depression in Holland. No one was spared. That's kind of the popular perception of Tulip Mania. Everyone involved, huge bubble, big crash, major depression. Turns out it wasn't quite like that. I read a book this past week called Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. It's by Anne Goldgar, 450 pages. And the quotes on Amazon says it reads like a college textbook. I liked it because it was packed full of original sources. And it's from those original sources she realized it wasn't quite the extent of the mania that a lot of uh, Mackie mentioned and a lot of the pamphlets that were published afterwards sort of moralizing on this crisis, they tended to exaggerate a little bit. For a mania to occur, here's what you need. You need money. People with discretionary income. And in the the late 1500s, early 1600s, the, the Dutch... They had money, Golgar writes. While other populations suffered economically in the 17th century, the Dutch prospered, their high wages attracting immigrant labor from surrounding regions, whereas their neighbors in Europe tended to rely, often precariously, on subsistence agriculture for their livelihoods. The Dutch relied on the Baltic grain trade to feed their population freeing labor for specialized agriculture, such as dairy farming, for rural industry, fishing, and overseas trade. Many of the Dutch merchants were traders. They, they traded, and they were independent merchants who invested in individual voyages. In fact, Holland, Netherlands, had they opened up a commodity exchange in 1618. So they were used to trading, and tulips was just another thing to trade. Golgor writes, as luxury objects, tulips fit well into a culture of both abundant capital and a new cosmopolitanism, a culture springing at least in part from the more aristocratic taste entering the Dutch Republic from the South. Gardening, collecting, an interest in natural history, an interest in art. All these brought tulips to the attention of merchants in cities like Amsterdam, Harlem, and Delft. Tulips came to the Netherlands in part because of an interest in science, but they were embraced because such an interest was shared by more ordinary citizens with some money in their pockets. They came also because they must have inspired some of the same kinds of feelings as paintings, another object in which such people invested their money. And they came because they were in fashion. They had these tulips coming into it because they were, they were luxury items. And there was just hobbyists sort of trading them. Now, tulips originated 
in Asia Minor, but the Europeans became aware of them about mid to late 1500s in Turkey. Olgier Gislin de Buzbek, he was the Flemish envoy of the Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II. And in September 1st, 1955, he wrote a letter describing his journey to Constantinople. In the letter, he says, as we passed through this district, we everywhere came across quantities of flowers, narcissi, hyacinth, and tulipins, as the Turks call them. We were surprised to find them flowering in midwinter, scarcely a favorable season. The tulip has little or no scent, but it is admired for its beauty and variety of its colors. The Turks are very fond of flowers, and although they are otherwise anything but extravagant, they do not hesitate to pay several aspreys for a fine blossom. Tulips were introduced about 30 years later into the Netherlands, and a lot of people had never seen them. At times, they got mistaken for onions and eaten, and it tastes so great. But Jahan Somer, he was a wealthy, well-educated, multilingual resident of Middleburg in the western province of the Netherlands, Zealand. He did a long, extended pleasure trip from 1590 to 19 or 1590 to 50, 1592, and he described Constantinople as such a very beautiful sight that everyone who sees it would say that it seems rather a paradise than a city. And he described how the, the Turks loved their gardens and herbs. Even the poor would have these gardens with a lot of flowers in them. They were very much flowers. And there was a whole market in Constantinople that was just dedicated to flowers and herbs that came from the Black Sea and from other places like Egypt and India. So he brought back bulbs and, and they, would, they would trade among his friends. They were hobbyists. The, 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 the name they used, this is a Dutch name, I don't even know what it means. It's Leafhebbers, L-I-E-F-H-E-B-B-E-R-S. And, and that's what they would do. But they were rare and exotic. And the, the, the tulips that they valued the most were variegated tulips. Those that were like, they had flames or were striped. And, and it was this unpredictability of how sometimes you, you, would, you would plant a bulb and you knew what it was like and, you, and they would cut off offsets from these bulbs and you would plant it and something would change. The color might change. It might not be as variegated. And it wasn't until the 20th century that they realized that these variegated colors were produced by a virus an aphid-borne mosaic virus. And that led to really the unpredictability and sense of wonder with these flowers. In 1618, Juist van again wrote about which tulips were most prized in the Northern Netherlands. He writes, Here in this country, people value most the flamed, winged, speckled, jagged, and shredded, and the most variegated count, for most and the ones that are most valued are not the most beautiful or the nicest, but the ones which are the rarest to find, of which belong to one master who can keep them 
in high price or worth. Now, bulbs, tulip bulbs, they spend most of their time under the ground. And so as they became more popular among the hobbyists, and some were in it for the profit, you found people would steal tulip bulbs out of gardens, even though the garden walls were locked. And some of the hobbyists got frustrated by this. Oh, this sort of this mania that started developed in the early 1600s. Again, the peak wasn't until 1637. One of the early hobbyists and one of the earliest growers of tulips in the Netherlands was a man named Clusius. He writes, this pursuit of gardening will end in the end be cheapened, my dear Lipsius, because even merchants, yes, even artisan, low-grade laborers and other base craftsmen are getting involved in it. For they can see that rich men sometimes hand out money in order to buy some little plant or other that is recommended because it's so rare so that they can boast to their friends that they own it. To hell with those who started all this buying and selling. I have always kept a garden, sometimes for my own pleasure, sometimes so that I might serve my friends who I saw took pleasure in that pursuit. But now when I see all these worthless people, sometimes even those whose names I have never heard so impudent in their requests, sometimes I feel like giving up my pastime altogether. Who were these traders in tulips? Well, generally speaking, Gulgar mentions they were middle-level to well-off merchants, often pursuing international trade. Sometimes he had professionals such as lawyers, surgeons, doctors, and notaries. And, but it, they were business people, professionals, sort of trading in tulips, but it was kind of a side business. It wasn't thousands and thousands of people. Really, it was just hundreds involved in this trade and certainly not the poor. The tulips were sold sometimes in auctions, but mostly in private sales. It ranged between individual parties, sometimes in taverns or private homes. Now, there were some logistical challenges with growing tulips. They only bloom for a few weeks in April, May, or June. And then after they blossom, what they believed is that you had to take the bulbs out of the ground. It's called the dry bulb time. And for just for a couple months. And that was really when they could be traded. Then by September, they were replanted and they would remain in the ground until the next flowering season in the late spring or summer. So if bulbs were sold in this trading, most of the time it wasn't during this dry bulb time. It was during the fall or winter. And so there was risk that one, the bulbs wouldn't make it or that the colors were not as rich. And so there was definitely some risk in it. But there's also kind of a futures market because you would pay to, to, for a bulb in the fall and not take possession until the next summer, during the next dry bulb time when you could actually get it out. So you were paying sometimes a little bit uh, for oftentimes just a small payment until the time of delivery. So you were basically purchasing the right to buy a bulb the next summer. Now, the Dutch were, they already had futures markets. 
that was not because they were trading commodities. They they were very comfortable buying something, paying a small premium for a future delivery. They would do that for for spices and and for ships that hadn't come yet. So it was very very common this trading. In this case, it was just sort of a sidelight. These tulip bulbs. Let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. So there was a lot of trading involved by merchants and professionals, just, just hundreds of them. It was hobbyists and then more got involved. And then into the kind of the mid-1630s, things started to heat up. There was a number of partnerships and companies set up to buy and sell tulips. And it, but it wasn't really until the, the fall of 1636 into the winter of 1637 that things started to escalate. This happened to be right after several years of the plague had, had hit the Netherlands, and it was almost, almost like a sense of relief that, that the plague seemed to have dissipated to some, to some extent. And, and as Goldgar looked at it, there was some evidence that market prices were accelerating. But it, it's hard because often these bulbs were sold by weight. The heavier the bulb and the rarer the bulb, the more it was worth. But the heaviest because they could cut off and do offsets because it took eight years to grow a, a tulip from seed. And so, but you could split a bulb and plant it. And so the, these, the bigger the bulb in terms of weight, the more valuable and the rarest. Although the more rare they were, the more valuable they were. But here's an example that, they, that, that she gives. This is a, a bulb that Admiral... Van de Eyck bulb sold in January 1637 for a thousand guilders. Now, a thousand guilders at that time would buy roughly 4,600 pounds of figs, 3,500 pounds of almonds, 5,600 pounds of raisins, 370 pounds of cinnamon. A thousand guilders was three years' wages for a master carpenter. And worth roughly twelve thousand dollars in two thousand seven dollars. So certainly a lot of money. We compare that to Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi painting, just sold for four hundred and fifty million dollars. 
Now, Goldgard points out that these weren't the poor buying this, and, and these traders, they were used to dealing with sums of a thousand guilders as they, they would trade with on, on ships. And so this was certainly high prices, but not un, un, certainly un, unseemly or extravagant prices for something that was rare and exotic. And in a lot of the, the post-bubble liter- literature talked about hundreds of chains as people would just, they would sell one tulip bulb that was still in the ground and then resell it and resell it and resell it. She only found chains of, from one seller to another of, of five times that has been sold, one same bulb to the same person. You didn't see it like some, like Mackie talked about. And she could only, in the original literature, find 37 people that spent more than 400 guilders on bulbs, which would be equivalent to, what, $4,000. Now, afterwards, this bubble, this mania, they would look back and say, but this was just bulbs. Why would we be that kind of money for a plant? She writes, after the fact, as happened in other financial crises in later centuries, it's easy to preach irrationality. But there was nothing intrinsically crazy, nor did most before the crash say there was, about buying a product. It was clear one could sell on at a higher price. The unsustainability of the price was not predictable. And if a crash happened, it was not necessarily to be foreseen. The tulip, as we will see, was blamed in pamphlets after the crash as being merely a paltry flower. But the value of a tulip was simply the value placed in it by buyers and sellers. One might just as well say paltry gold or in our case, paltry Bitcoin. The value is just what buyers and sellers place on it. And at that time, they valued tulips. Was it a bubble? I've, I, my view of a bubble is you can actually value it. There's an objective criteria. But with something like a tulip, something aesthetic like that, or a piece of art, or even gold, it's whatever buyers and sellers are willing to transact at. And so you can't say it's a bubble. You can say it's a mania. And Bitcoin has some aspects of that. When we look at the number of Bitcoin wallets in place, so users, here ago, there were 10 million wallets of so people that, that have the public-private key combination. Now there's 19 million. So you have more people coming in, just like you had more coming in to the, the tulip trade, but 19 million, given the population of the world, it's just, that's still just a small amount. So it's not, it's everybody participating in Bitcoin, but there's enough that the price is going up and we can't say when it will stop. There's no way of note, objectively know when a mania, if it is that, will end. There wasn't any way to know about the tulips. It did happen in February that they peaked. And why? Nobody knows. They suspect maybe there was more supply coming on, but perhaps people saw the prices go up 
significantly in January and February 1637 and just felt like it wasn't sustainable. So then they stopped and the price fell. And this was the challenge. Because this was sort of a futures market, those that had bought bulbs or paid a premium to be able to to take delivery of bulbs in the summer no longer wanted the bulbs because the price had fallen. And they were stuck. They did, did, did the buyers didn't want them. The sellers obviously wanted to enforce the contract, but they they reneged. They would say, I will do as another does. I'm not inclined to accept them. What another does, it would be needless for me to do more. These are various people that were the buyers that said, I'm not taking delivery. I'm not paying for something that has crashed in price. And, and there was a sort of a standstill. There was about a year before they, they resolved it. There was commissions set up. Commissioners for flower affairs in Harlem and other cities set up these commissions. Figure out, well, what do we do? And at the end, they decided that the, the contracts could be annulled if the buyer would pay a fee of 3.5% of what they agreed to pay. But even then, they didn't want to do that. It was better just to renege. And, and this just kind of went on for several years. And that was what a lot of the, the morals of the pamphlets, it was this reneging on their honor of contracts that is what, it wasn't so much that yeah, you had the bulbs go up in price and crash, but the profound effect was the fact that people wouldn't honor what they said they would take delivery for. So you had these purchase contracts were reneged on, people didn't honor them, you had the sellers stuck with bulbs that were diminished in price, but it didn't lead to a depression. Goldgard looked at the original documents you could find and found that among the economic historians who studied Netherlands, nobody suggests that a decline, economic decline occurred in the late 1630s and early 1640s, either as a result of tulip mania or for other reasons. In fact, they believe the economy continued to grow until the mid-17th century in nearly every area. So it didn't cause depression because it wasn't hundreds of thousands involved, or even tens of thousands. It was hundreds, a, a, a mania that did occur, mainly concentrated in that six-month period where you had huge jump in prices. Again, difficult to determine exactly how much. Then sales stopped. Prices fell. It took them several years to kind of work it out. But then life went on. Goldgar right, tulip mania was only irrational after the fact. The market had held, it would have been supremely sensible to invest one's money in tulip bulbs. The same could be said for Bitcoin. The market holds, it'd be sensible. If it crashes, well, maybe not. And in that episode 163, I sort of talked about Bitcoin, the limited supply, things that could let it be sort of a, a digital gold, a store of value. But there's things against Bitcoin, the, the forks that can occur that, that means that there's more 
cryptocurrencies outstanding. The energy used to, to create and mine Bitcoin is a concern. We don't know. The, the reader or listener that has 27% of his net worth in Bitcoin wants to know what to do. Comes down to regret. Take profits, but how much profits do you take? And and I don't know what other assets he has, but been a good run. Maybe it's time to take some profits. But you got to weigh the regret of it continuing to rise with the regret if you hold, regret if you hold on, and the price uh, of Bitcoin collapses. We just don't know. Just like in that way, it's just like tulips. We don't know how it will end. So that's episode 182. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific financial situation. I'm not provided any type of investment advice. Simply general education of money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.